I believe open theism is a heresy. I do. I believe its teaching is based on illogical and unbiblical philosophical assumptions imposed upon Scripture. Now, I mean no offense to any of you who are open theists. And that may sound hard to say, but I believe it's a heresy. And I believe it's part of the apostasy to come. Part of the apostasy to come. How cute, Matt Slick. How cute. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Matt Slick. Matt Slick, everybody's favorite Calvinist. He, look at him over there. He's, he's a little cute guy, a little cute Calvinist. And Matt Slick's funny. And uh, I had personal interactions with him. So that's what we're actually going to go over today. So this is going to be not a reaction video. We're not going to be watching and then reacting. I'm just going to be recounting my interactions with Matt Slick. And it and it's funny, he's a funny guy, and not intentionally. Just the way he thinks, the way he processes stuff. Uh, as one commenter just commented on one of our YouTube videos on Matt Slick, and Matt Slick, he, he drinks his own poison. He believes the things that he's saying. He does. And it's so funny, the double standards, just, just the irrational way that he treats the world around him. And so the purpose of this podcast is for me just, just so that my experiences with him, my memories, don't flow into the wayside, don't get lost to history. They, they're not gone like a tear in the rain. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. All right, so the debate in Denver between Will Duffy and Matt Slick. Now, Will Duffy is a friend of mine, and uh, he asked me to give him some feedback on on the debate, some of the things he should try to cover and touch on, and I tried to do that. And then then I, I decided to come to the debate, actually, to, to try to help him out, try to give him support, try to uh, be at this historical event where Matt Slick, a Calvinist, is debating a real open theist, one that's not going to... Uh, shirk back from uh, laying it to him and actually holding him to task on some of his beliefs. It's going to be pretty funny because I think Will Duffy's a more competent debater than Enyart. Enyart was kind of going off the track a little bit and he was uh, pressing concerns that weren't quite where he should have been focused during the debate. And the first part of the Enyart uh, James White debate that was pretty much written by Will Duffy, and that was the best part of the debate. And so I had to be at this historic debate. I drive to Denver. I load my car up with all my kids, well, some of my kids, not my, my babyest. And uh, we drive to Denver, and we have a good time. We get there the first night of the debate, and Will Duffy turns to me. He's like, how would you like to go pick up Matt Slick? And, uh, I'm sitting here a little bit worried because... I've made memes about Matt Slick, and they're not the nicest memes in the world. They're very triggering. And he got really mad at one of my memes on one, one page, one time. I triggered Matt Slick pretty bad in, in, in my history. So I'm like, okay, I'll go pick up Matt Slick. I drive to the hotel. I give him a little text message. I'm here to pick you up. I'm your chauffeur. Uh, you know, professional, kind. He comes out. Uh, he, he's good. He's kind. He's cordial. I drive him back to the church. We don't talk theology. We just talk small talk. Oh, you're an open theist. You know, something like that. You know, Just small talk in the car. I wasn't going to try to uh, trigger the guy. I wasn't trying to engage him in a theological debate in the car. Uh, he, he did have the guts. The, the, <laughs> you got to give him a little bit of credit. He came out to a hostile audience to debate an issue. He's willing to debate. And willingness to debate, that's a sign of intellectual in integrity. When you're looking at signs of intellectual integrity versus signs of uh, intellectual dishonesty, willingness to debate is uh, plus towards intellectual integrity. So you got to give him props for that. As one commenter did note, he drinks his own poison. He believes the things that he's saying. And so in his debates, you got to really watch what he's saying, why he's saying it, and uh, figure out that this, this, he's a slick operator. He's a smooth operator. And sometimes you'll even see it in the cross-examination. And when he's asked a question, he doesn't know the answer. He has no idea. He makes up something in his head 
on the spot. And so you get a lot of inconsistencies in his belief because rather than admitting he doesn't know something or rather than saying that he doesn't have an answer or he needs to get back to you, he'll sometimes just make up an answer that doesn't align with his previously stated beliefs. Now, that's, that's one of his mental ways of dealing with these interactions. And, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, too, his mental issues. And he's got serious mental issues. P-A-R-A-K-G-G-T. Penguin. A no joke, no kidding. It's, he claims himself that he has mental issues. I've pretended to be mentally retarded for seven years. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So I pick him up at the hotel. I bring him back to the church. And we bring him to the lobby. And he's instantly engaged from all sides. He's, he's, he's a celebrity. He, he's there for a purpose. And everyone wants to talk and interact with them. All these people regularly interact with Will Duffy. So Matt Slick's the celebrity. People, uh, they, they corral around him, start asking him questions. I stand off to the side with Nathan Pedersen. And we, me and Nathan Pedersen have that post-debate talk about the Will Duffy debate and, uh, and our impressions of that. And so that's who Nathan Pedersen is. So we're having a side conversation. Well, Matt Slick is talking. At one point, he talks to my sister, and he explains to her what it is to equivocate, using the same word in different ways and different meanings, switching meanings. And he uses the word green. He's like, oh, green. What what does the word green mean? And it's like, well, you know, okay, you, you tell us or whatever. And he says, okay, so green could be like a color or it can be that someone is new to something, you know, they're green. It could be like environmentalism. I, I, I don't know all the examples he went through, but he went through several, talking about how the word green can mean different things in different contexts. And his point was about equivocation. And I said, yeah, that's a very good example. I will have to steal that from you. I will steal that example of equivocation from you. It's funny because later he equivocates himself. It's, it's this uh, idea that whatever benefits him, that's the standards he adopts for the time. And he won't allow anyone else to uh, point out the same fallacies that he's trying to point out in others. So it's funny. I'm off on the side with Nathan Pedersen, and we're talking. And uh, Matt Slick overhears that Nathan Pedersen is a former Calvinist. And he says to him, he says that, uh, oh, you're a ca- former Calvinist? Oh, really? I got the one verse. The one verse that will destroy open theism. This, this is the absolute proof. <laughs> it's funny. This, this verse does not come up during these two debates. And, and probably the reason, probably it was originally on his docket to be the, the super proof of open theism's falsity. But since he tried it out, uh, Nathan Pedersen and myself, it didn't make the debate because it didn't go over very well. And so what was it? It was uh, Colossians 2.14. And you, this is Colossians uh, 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What? <laughs> what? That, that's your absolute proof? That, that is the, what undoes open theism? Oh, Oh, it's shattered. Why am I? That, that proves it. I'm gone. I'm gone. So we're all sitting around confused. We don't know what the heck this guy's talking about. It's just like, you're just talking crazy talk. That has nothing to do with our beliefs and overriding. He's like, hold on one second. Hold on one second. I will explain why this verse kills open theism. It destroys it for God. And so he breaks into an analogy and he says, okay, say this. there's this guy in this hospital and the guy goes into this coma and then, uh, you know, because Calvinists think that people are dead in their trespasses and sins because, and then God has to uh, enable them and imbue them with a special Gnostic light in order to raise them to respond. And uh, he says, pretend this guy's in the coma. And then a rich guy comes to pay his debt. And this rich guy, of course, he can't just... Yeah, you ha- he has to know what the debt is. So you have to know what the specific dollar amount that this guy owes on his mortgage, his house mortgage, in order to pay off his house mortgage for him. So because 
in Corinthia or in Colossians 2:14, it says, "By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross." Because there's a record of debt, that debt has to be all inclusive of all sins that would ever happen. And God needs to know the exact amount of debt, of sin debt to pay off. Therefore, open theism is false. And we're all sitting here like, that is the stupidest argument we have ever heard. That's just rejecting everything we know about. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe your reading of that verse is, is correct. But there are a lot of other options. There are a lot of other options. And so I said, okay, so how about this? So Bill Gates, he's a really rich guy. And he could pay off everyone's record of debt by just creating a big fund. And he says that if you have faith in me, I will gift you with the money from my trust fund and I'll pay off your mortgage. It's a blank check. And uh, people don't have to have a specific record of debt. He doesn't know, have to know everyone's debts well into the future. He could just lump some, put a big, huge pile out there that people could draw against. That's one way that he could do it. He could do it like that. He doesn't have to have the exact record knowledge of everyone's single's debts in order to pay people's debts off. It doesn't have to happen. And uh, my dad, he interjected as well. And, and uh, <laughs> Matt's like so funny. So my dad interjected. He said, Oh, the American soldiers during World War II uh, paid for our freedom. And, uh, of course, his point was that they paid for our freedom in the past for our current freedom. And it's a, it's a common figure of speech, and we understand what it means. It doesn't have to mean that our freedom had to be quantifiable in a known quantity. And there's all sorts of assumptions that he has to bring into this verse one after another, that, that sin is a thing that's quantifiable by a specific amount. And then there's this record that keeps accumulating to this, this finite total. And then it has to be paid off in this one transaction. Exactly. All sorts of assumptions that are not proven that he has to assume all these things onto the text. That, that was the point. And, and his response was, oh, you can't use analogies. You can't use analogies. You can't use analogies. He had just... He had just used an analogy about this guy in the hospital on this bed, and that he just wanted to disallow anyone else using a counter analogy. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about with this double standards. And it was pretty funny. All right, my next interaction with Matt Slick is recorded, and I ask him a question about his preferred translation of one of his proof texts. And let's see what he says about that. All right, thank you. Uh, we all know that uh, translation is a difficult process. Words have multiple meanings and multiple ways to be taken. I'm talking right now about Proverbs 16.4. Can you defend the translation you use over these two alternative translations? The NIV, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. That disaster. Or the ICB, the Lord makes everything work the way he wants it, even has a day of disaster for evil people. So what makes the translations that you use superior to these translations? They're different kinds of translations. Some are dynamic and some are literal. And so the NASB, for example, tries to get the actual literal meaning. And then you can have a paraphrase. So you have a wide variety of translations. The NASB is what I use because that's what Paul the Apostle used. It. I don't know that. But uh, because it's more literal to the original languages. And so I just, since I'm not a Hebrew scholar, that's why I use the NASB and hold it what it says. So would these alternative translations also be valid? Well, it depends. Um, it's, you want me to really answer this? Okay, yo tengo hambre. It's Spanish, I have hunger. Literally, it's I, ha I, I have hunger. But we don't say it like that. We say, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. And so if we're to do a literal translation, I would, if I were to literally translate that, I, I have hunger. Now that's a dynamic, or that's, that's a, a very literal. Now what if I were to just say, hey, dude, I'm craving grinds. That's another translation of that, which is a surf talk. Mm -hmm. So along the issue and uh, the scope of translation styles, then you say, what is the intent when they're trying to do that? So you can have literalness, which is accurate, non-literalness, which is accurate. So it's not that they contradict. The real thing that needs to be done is to go into the Hebrew, get an interlinear look and see what the words say, and then just do the best you can for literalness, because this is what we need at this point. So it's not an easy question to answer. I'm not trying to muddy the waters. It's just 
that's just the nature of, of what it means. You know? Duffy, any comment? No, appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you dropped the ball. You dropped the ball. And here's the point. And here's the point. So his proof texts rely on his specific translations of verses, whereas there are alternative translations available for the texts. And so if, if there's multiple translations for a text and you have to rely on your specific translation, you need to prove that that translation's the best translation out of all of those other alternatives or else your proof text falls apart. It falls apart. And uh, Matt's like, he doesn't get it. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. Uh, he doesn't have his proof text that he wants. It doesn't exist in that verse. And that was one of his primary verses that he was relying on. And Will Duffy, you fouled me. You fouled me. You should have pointed out. You should have pointed out that his proof text relies on his specific translation where there are, are, are alternative translations available that also makes sense, which doesn't lend itself to what he wants to make that proof text to mean. After the debate, after the debate, uh, I went and did kind of my own stuff for a while, found out where my kids were, what they were doing. They were all running around outside or upstairs or something during the entire debate. I let them go wild, have fun, um, be kids. And uh, I track them down, figure out where they are. Everyone has this little get together afterwards where they're or eating food or whatever. And Matt Slick's still in the auditorium. He's talking to all these different people. He's got this crowd around him. He's the celebrity. Everyone's crowded around him. I give him his space. Uh, I don't need to be right in there and uh, fawning over him or anything like that. So I talk to other people for a while. The crowd starts thinning out. One by one, people are going home. And pretty quickly, it's... Uh, well, first of all, first of all, one thing was funny. I was talking to my sister in the auditorium. And uh, there are kids playing in the background. And Matt's slick. He starts freaking out. He starts freaking out about this, uh, these kids in the background because apparently he can't concentrate. He can't think when things like that are going on in the background. And, and you see this in, in, the actual, in the actual tape of the debate. There's an instance where the, on the second day where sun starts shining through the window and starts hitting him, uh, and uh, he, he really needs that sun gone in order for him to function properly. He can't function until that's gone. Oh, thank you. That is so good. Now the light. Oh, people don't know I have autism. Uh, I do. So I'm hypersensitive to lights and sounds and things like that. Sorry. And, uh, sounds. There's a point of the conversation or of uh, the, the question and answers, but this guy is tapping on the microphone and you see Matt Slick's face, his reaction to it. He doesn't like the tapping. It, uh, it messes with him. I'm pretty sure it's the second uh, question and answer session where this tapping just kind of triggers him. He's, he's got this uh, mental thing where he doesn't like ticks. He has to have things certain ways. He have, has to have things perfectly in order for his brain to function. And uh, I found that out also in my conversation with him in which uh, I tried to answer his questions before he was done making his point. And he couldn't have that. He couldn't deal with me pre-answering his questions. So he had to finish his, his points. And then I had to give him the exact same objections that I already had predicted what his point would be. And I had to just tell my objection over to him, although, although I had already given it. He, he had to. In his mind, he had to finish the point he was trying to make, even though it was already refuted. And so I had to refute it twice. Uh, it's uh, it's a mental thing. It's it's a mental tick that's going on there. So my sister and I start talking to him, and he starts talking about different fallacies, and and he's testing the waters with me. He's trying to see if I know what I'm talking about, and he's like, "Do you know what the fallacy of composition is?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's uh, when you take uh, uh, attributes of a subset and try to apply it to the whole." And he was just like, "Oh." Yeah, I get surprised that I answered so succinctly and with a pretty solid definition of what that fallacy was. And there's another time we're talking about Gnosticism. He's like, do you even know what Gnosticism is? I'm like, yeah, it's, a, it's the idea of this Platonic ascension where there's this uh, pure actuality one and there's uh, decreasing layers of reality. And a Gnostic has to have this spiritual enlightenment in order to reascend to this one. Uh, the flesh is evil, and the goal is a reascent to the spiritual. And after that, he's like, 
oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was funny. My sister, she noted it. She noted it that he was, uh, he, he was very perplexed and he was out of his element when I was so easily able to respond to the things he was saying with such uh, uh, confidence and uh, accuracy. And so he was a little bit uh, frazzled. It, it was a different experience that he, I don't think he was used to that experience before, just the way he's interacting. And so he turns to eventually 1 John 3.20. And this is his uh, big uh, verse to prove that open theism is false. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything or he knows all things. And so I instantly, boom, like that, say, First uh, John two twenty. Man knows everything, and Matt Slick's face he just went wild. His eyes shot open. Uh, if if you're looking right now on the video, his eyes are like open. That's that's what he looked like. He got wide eyed and crazy, and you see him frantically uh, switching to First uh, John two twenty. And let's read it in the New King James. But you have anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. And so 1 John 3.20, his proof text, says that God knows all things. I instantly recountered him and said, 1 John 2.20, man knows all things. He's like, what? What? That's not what it says. And then I read it to him from the New King James. Because, of course, the New King James has the same phrase as, as uh, 1 John 3.20. And the New King James is, is based off of the majority text. And if you don't know anything about textual criticism, the majority text is is more of uh, the Byzantine text. It's it's the uh, collection of texts that accumulated around the world, and th there's this 99% of all texts, or maybe like 95% of all all manuscripts in existence agree with each other, and they have very strong textual consistency. But all the versions of the New Testament, other than the King James, which is uh, based off of the Texas Receptus, which is very close to the Byzantine text, and the New King James. Everything else is based off this uh, Westcott-Hort type of translation, which is a more critical translation, where they take texts like the, the Alexandrian text, and uh, they compile these earlier versions, which they say are better. Remember, anything that says Alexandria after it, Philo of Alexandria, Origin of Alexandria, all, all these Alexandrian texts are it's steeped in Greek philosophy. The Septuagint was written in Alexandria, in, in Egypt, and these they have that slant to them. So uh, personally, I don't think the Alexandrian texts are the best, even though they might be the oldest. They are the oldest by virtue of being in a place where it's arid and they're able to survive longer. But uh, so the majority text, the New King James, and the King James both have, you know, all things, which he has to deal with that. He has to either say, that's a bad translation. That phrase, if it were true, would mean that mankind has the same type of omniscience that God has in the next chapter. Uh, but he freaks out. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have his computer next to him. So he, he's wide-eyed, he's frantic, and he gets up and he, he runs over to his computer and he starts and my sister and I were just sitting there kind of just looking at each other like, what the heck? And he's like, it's not in this one. Click, click, click. It's not in this one. Click, click, click. Like, what is he doing? There's there's really only two manuscripts he could be checking. He, unless, unless he's like a super textual scholar and he has all these different variant uh, Greek texts. He doesn't know Greek. He doesn't know Greek. This is what we learned at that instant. He, he was checking various English translations and say, this English translation, this, this English translation doesn't have it. This English translation does not, he doesn't know Greek. He doesn't know Greek. I told him, I said straight out to him, I said, it's in the Byzantine text, the Byzantine text. He didn't know what that meant. He didn't know that that meant. I said, I said to him, what manuscripts are, did you just check? Cause we didn't know. He just kept saying, it's not in this one. So what manuscripts did you not, did you just check? And it was a blank. He didn't have an answer. He was checking the English. He was checking various English translations. And so that was funny. And so I talked to him. I said, it's the exact same phrase. It, it says the exact same thing. <laughs> you know all. It's, it's entire proof text. He was, he was frazzled. He didn't know how to respond. And uh, he was called out. And he, he went frantic. He went wild. 
after uh, he was exposed on this thing. It was funny. It, ah, it was, it was like, hey, this guy doesn't know Greek. He, he looks at the English translations and he thinks the English translations are the Greek manuscripts. He doesn't know what the Byzantine text is. And this is this guy has like one of the most popular Christian websites. Like everyone's quoting carb.org on everything. He doesn't know what the Byzantine text is. Okay, okay. And so we're talking, uh, the, the subject shifts. He's like, I'll get back to you on that. And here's what he does. He goes back to his hotel room that night and he studies up on uh, the, the pontos, the word for all. And he comes back the next day uh, when I see him again. He's like, well, uh, I'm going to teach you about pontos. It's like, okay. And then if anybody's interested, I talked about, I'll show you the word all. I'll show you something if you're interested. I'll tell you if you guys want to study that. It's like, no, you're not, dude. You don't know anything about Greek. You went back to your hotel room, you studied up, and now you think you're an expert. You're not. You're a layman. I could teach you about it if you want to learn about how language works and functions. But uh, you don't want that, do you? And your proof text that you were sure destroyed open theism, it's not a very good proof text because the same phrase in, in the same context is used about man. And you, you, you can't say, okay, that's a bad proof text for my belief, and uh, I need to find a better proof text because you're so desperate for proof text. You, you absolutely need this proof text no matter what. And uh, throw intellectual integrity to the wind, and, and uh, you, you have to find a way to discount this other verse, even though it's the same phrase, the same Greek phrase in the Byzantine text. And you have to either say, oh, the Byzantine text is wildly wrong, and everyone who read the Byzantine text thought that mankind's omniscient, or you have to use this normal reading comprehension and say, okay, this is not talking about this omniscience that's uh, of all things past, present, and future. It's just like knowing all things. It's just a common phrase that's used of man, used of God. It might be used in a different sense, but uh, we can't draw any definite conclusions about the type of knowledge from this phrase. <laughs> we can't. So we're talking to Matt Slick still, and uh, he tries to talk about uh, fatalism. He's like, oh, open theists believe that uh, if the future is known, then it must be fated. But let me tell you, he's going he's gonna to give an illusion. He's going to give an example. Remember, previously he said, oh, you guys can't use examples. You guys can't use illusions. Uh, we disallow that, but he gets to do it whenever he wants. Uh, that's fine. That's the Matt Slick thing. Uh, double standards. Anything that benefits him is okay. But if you try to do the same stuff, disallowed. Uh, cut that off. He doesn't want examples or illusions to try to illustrate concepts. He says, oh, those aren't applicable. Uh, that, that, that makes, you can't do that. You can't draw parallels between those things. <laughs> like, okay, okay, tell me, tell me your little story here. And he says, Jason. And Jason was the moderator of the debate, if you watched the debate. He says, Jason, I know that Jason is going to go to his car tonight and drive home. Barring a meteor strike. He, he added that. It was so funny. Because, uh, no, so what kind of knowledge do you have that Jason is going to get in his car and drive home? Uh, I know that. He knew that. He knew the definition of the word knowledge there. He's using a knowledge that doesn't have to be 100% absolute, but we know the future. You and me, we know the future. And uh, just the other day, I told someone on Facebook, I said, I'm going to go to work tomorrow. Does that mean the future is set? After I go to work tomorrow, I'm going to come home and I'm going to comment and tell you I went to work. Was the future closed? What Was that a predestined event? No, it's just the normal use of the word knowledge. And so he says, I know he's going to get in his car and drive home. See, my knowledge of this thing happening didn't cause it to happen. This is where I interrupted him right away. So as soon as he said, uh, Jason gets in his car and he drives home, I interrupted him and I said, yeah, but now you're going to ascribe a different type of knowledge to God, a knowledge that has to be 100% absolute object-based knowledge, whereas the knowledge that you're using in this example is just how we normally use the word knowledge, a justified true belief. And he's like, rawr, 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 rawr. <laughs> let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. <laughs> okay, I'll let you finish your point. And then he goes on, he says, so my knowledge of Jason getting in his car and driving home doesn't cause it to happen. And so in the same way, God can know the future and not cause it to happen. I'm like, okay, rewind. Let's go back to the point I just said that just refuted you, that you just ignored to 
finish off your point, which is already refuted. I didn't say it like that. I was a little nicer. I just repeated it again. I said, all right, so this is different type of knowledge. You're equivocating. Uh, you're using one type of knowledge in, in how you know Jason's going to drive home tonight, and you're using an entirely different type of knowledge in uh, how God knows Jason will drive home tonight. In God's knowledge, it's 100% fact. It can't be wrong. There's no meteor strike that's going to take him out, and it's object-based. There's something that exists to generate that knowledge for God. It's, it's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not a probability. It's not an event that doesn't exist. It's, it's object-based knowledge. And so you have two different types of knowledge, and you're equivocating. You're pretending they're the same. No, that's not true. In God's knowledge, that event cannot happen. So although, you know, maybe God's knowledge doesn't cause that to happen, it's faded in some way. If the future exists, then it's faded, right? It might not be God's knowledge causing that faded event to happen. There might be a third factor causing it, but we know it is faded. That, that's how this, these things work. Matt Slick, it is so funny. He's so funny. Okay, so we kind of cut off the conversation, I believe, after that. Maybe my sister knows more details or whatever else we talked about. But I get to give the guy a ride home. And we're talking on the ride home about uh, angry outbursts of, uh, actually, that it was my father who uh, was the angry one in the video. So if you're in the questions and answers and there's a guy yelling, that's my dad. And so I'm like, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I, I thank you for coming out. We, we don't want to trigger Matt Slick because he's, he's been known to get off stage and walk away. And uh, there, was, there was one lady in one debate that questioned him and said, talked about his daughter. And his daughter is not a Christian anymore. And she talks very negatively about her experiences with her dad. And uh, that was brought up. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I was going to make sure to shut down any question, anyone who tries to ask you about your daughter. Because that's not fair. That's not good to do. And I had talked to Jason before the debate. And I said, we need to cut off any questions about his daughter. We're not going to alienate this guy so he doesn't come back and do a second debate. It's incredibly important to get this guy on record for the different things that he's uh, going over and saying. And, and uh, it's, it's a rare opportunity that someone actually wants to do debate. And so that's good. That's good. So he, he started talking about that. And he said, well, that was an interesting situation. He says, the lady there... The lady that had uh, brought up my daughter in that debate, I talked to her after the debate. He says, I shouldn't have got off stage. I shouldn't have ran away. It was an overreaction. I explained to the girl the circumstances of that event. And then she apologized afterwards. After she understood some factors that she didn't know before, um, that she, she apologized. So there's... So he's claiming there's additional factors involved in his daughter's apostasy that uh, people just don't know. So I, I will give him credit for that. Uh, we don't want to weaponize his daughter against him. And he also talked a little bit about his uh, Asperger's. And I was on uh, Matt Slick Live or something or Bible Thumping Wingnuts, and I was listening to it live, and he was talking about his Asperger's his, his mental issues. And the, the one I was watching, he was like, oh, my, my house is haunted by demons. They, they are oppressing me today. You got to pray for my safety. I'm like, whoa, buddy. Oh, buddy, you got demons oppressing you. Okay, alrighty. And Asperger's and mental illness. Okay, okay. Like, like when you're dealing with people in your real life and there's like a soccer mom that comes up to you and says, oh, my kid has autism. <laughs> Your kid has autism? Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure your kid has autism or they say, Oh, my, my kid has a gluten allergy. Oh, my kid has ADHD. Usually it's like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you didn't just make that up. I'm sure you're just not lying through your teeth or over overreacting like crazy, you know, because people like to make these things up. So when I first heard Matt Slick claim that he had Asperger's or whatever, I thought, mm, nah, I don't think so. I don't think she's retarded. Really, Jerry? Why don't you take a closer look? But be careful. If she catches on, she may fly into a rage where she would have the strength of an ape and no remorse. Not even a bullet would bring her down. But in interacting with this guy, those nervous tics where he doesn't like the thumping, he doesn't like the kid sounds in the background, the light shining on his eyes uh, forces him to lose concentration, where he has to finish a point. If he doesn't finish a point, 
uh, he he goes wild. He he can't he can't deal with not finishing his train of thought. His train of thought has to be completed. He can't move on until that's done. All signs of of mental illness. I, I think the guy has serious serious mental issues. Like like no kidding, no kidding. This guy has mental issues, and uh, no joke. I'm not making fun of him for having mental issues, but I think he does. And I think that's a big reason why he does the things he does, making up things during the debate to try to get an answer out, trying to create himself as some sort of uh, expert in spite of everything, uh, just just manipulating the debate to try to get to his favor and, and uh, misunderstanding other people's arguments. Uh, putting these double standards where he's allowed to do things that no one else is allowed to do. I think it all ties back to this uh, almost like an autism. autism. And I, I'm going to have to have Nurkish help me out here because uh, we talk a lot about mental illness and mass slick. So Nurkish, take it away. Did you know that 1 in 68 children are diagnosed every year with autism spectrum disorder? And that there is currently no single pharmaceutical medication for autism? Studies have shown that the best form of treatment for autism spectrum disorder is early intervention therapy between the ages of 0 and 3 years old. Therefore, research into early intervention therapies is imperative. Please invest in one of these charities today because remember autism is awesome my next interaction with matt slick is the next day of course he does the whole thing i'll teach you all about pontos we'll have a bible study no that's a thing he does he does it to will will duffy as well he says oh i'll teach you that i'll give a bible study to you it is so it's so condescending and arrogant and uh, that really shined. A lot of the uh, post-debate comments was about his arrogance. But he says that to me, too. And it's like, no, you're not going to teach me. You're not going to teach me. So our next interaction is at the end of the second debate. And Matt Slick does this thing where throughout the debate, he tries to compare open theism to Mormonism. And he tries to draw parallels. He tries to quote uh, uh, Mormons. And well, I'll post a little clip about that. Because what you're doing is actually teaching a false doctrine. If I were to quote you and say we're great, saved by grace through faith after all we can do, would you agree with that? What do you mean by after all we can do? Well, you know, you've got to believe, you've got to repent, you've got to do the right things. And this is why God saved us. So would you agree that we're saved by grace through faith after all we can do? We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, good, because I just quoted the book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25, 23. I was hoping you weren't going to agree with it. But the very fact that I have to come close to that is interesting. And so... I, I do some, you know, little searches on uh, uh, Platonism and uh, to just to drive home the fact that what he's doing is an ad hominem attack. And so I go up there and this is what I ask. All right. Uh, Matt Slick, uh, you write on your website, and you could uh, tell me if you still affirm this. Human free will choices are consistent with the sovereign providence of God. Yes. Okay. Would you also uh, affirm that this providence must reach to all details? It's functioning, must neglect no point. Yeah. Congratulations, you just affirmed Plotinus, a Neoplatonist philosopher. Okay, now, let me respond to that. Because the problem here is that if I affirm what someone said before, and therefore, what? It's not true? You did that with the Book of Mormon. Okay, hold on. No, I didn't. No, I said there's similarities. <laughs> oh, he's caught. He is caught in this, his double standards. He'll do it with the Book of Mormon against open theism, but he takes exception. Oh, he's, he's, he takes exception. Now, now his logic, now his reason comes out, and now he's against uh, comparisons and similarities. That's not the genetic fallacy. Similarities <laughs> are not the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy says this. The murderer taught me algebra, so therefore the algebra is false. That's it's called the genetic fallacy. It's a fallacy of argumentation. So, if uh, he he doesn't he doesn't understand his uh, double standards and uh, just his inconsistency and how he himself he's he's projecting, he is projecting. Uh, he could do that to other people. He could compare open theists with Mormons, but no. Don't talk about uh, Calvinism's being Platonist. And keep in mind, we have literal history showing us that Calvinism 
uh, came from Platonism. When he claims that uh, open theism came from all these different beliefs, he claims Aristotle, he claims Philo of Alexandria. He claims Philo of Alexandria was a predecessor to open theism. Uh, Have you read Philo? Do you know anything about Philo? I don't think so. But we literally have the history showing the development of uh, Christianity and the infiltration of Neoplatonism. And so that's the difference. So it's not the genetic fallacy. It's literal history. We could show the development. But uh, he takes exception. And it is funny. I'm, I got to move myself. I put myself on Will Duffy, but I got to move it off. Let's look at his smile. Look at his little smile. He is so he thinks it's hilarious that I pull out this double standard. I'm going to kind of sit between these guys. So you can see Will Duffy's so, reaction. Uh, whoever you said Pliny and others taught this, it doesn't mean it's true or doesn't mean it's not true. The issue is what does the scriptures teach? So it's- you got that little smirk. Uh, Will Duffy looks over to Matt Slick, and he he gets it. He understands what's going on here. It's an invalid argument. It's not a um, a logical valid criticism. Genetic fallacy. <laughs> My last interaction with Matt Slick. My last interaction with Matt Slick was about his use of Acts thirteen forty eight, and this is a big one. And on the podcast that I mentioned earlier, where he is talking, this is the his go to text when he wants to bring people. Through Calvinism, he turns to Acts 13.48, and this is the New King James. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. And so what, what's happening here is as many has been appointed. Who's doing the appointing here? In the Greek, we don't really know except for through context whether a verb is passive or middle, whether there's someone acting on themselves or someone being acted on. And in context, if we look that these people, they were judging themselves unworthy of everlasting life in 46. So who's the actor? In context, it sounds like people are judging themselves unworthy of everlasting life, and then they're appointing themselves to eternal life in uh, 48. The verb is a middle. And so I'm pointing this out to him. And Will Duffy has the setup. He knows what's going to go down. He understands uh, the verbs. He understands the Greek. And Matt Slick doesn't. He doesn't know Greek. And this, oh, this, this is this is just the beautiful, a beautiful part of this entire debate, exposing Matt Slick's just basic ignorance of Greek and flipping out. Well, just watch his face when I ask him the question. I got an interesting question. Let's talk about conjugating verbs. You're pretty adamant on Acts 13.48 that it's as many as were ordained. And Duffy took the position that as many as ordained themselves, middle versus passive voice. So in the Greek language, let's talk about the Greek language, how it functions, word morphology. How does the Greek distinguish between the middle and passive? And if you don't know, you can defer to Mr. Duffy. What's your question? How does the Greek language distinguish between the middle and passive voices? I don't understand. How, how does it distinguish? Are you asking what the difference is between active, middle, no, and passive? No, I'm not asking the function of the speech. I'm asking how a word morphology would indicate to us the difference between middle and passive verb. Because Matt Slick, his, his position is predicated on this verb being passive rather than middle. So I'm asking him, what would the word look like? What would the word look like if it were middle? And watch this. Uh, look at the confusion on his face. He He's like, oh, should I just explain to you how the speech functions? No, I understand that. What would the word look like? Do you know Greek? This is this is like basic Greek. If you knew Greek, you'd be able to tell us what that word would look like if it were middle, a position that you thought was untenable. You said Will Duffy's position that it's middle is untenable. Well, if what would it take to make that word a middle? What would it look like? And so he... Ah, look at his face. His face is oh, confusion. He's about to get wrecked. Wrecked. And Will Duffy, uh, I don't know what he's doing right now. I might have sent him a text message on this. We were doing a little bit of texting back and forth during the debate. But uh, it's a it's a beautiful setup. Oh, beautiful. You mean with the theta, which demonstrates passivity? In the I'm verb, asking, in the yeah. Foundation? What would this verb, uh, tetragomenoi, what would it have to be to be a middle rather than a passive? Oh, oh. So you mean, what's the conjugational form that it would have to be in a structure in order to be that? I don't know. Mr. Duffy, can you elaborate? <laughs> sure. Uh, I pulled this up just because I didn't have it when I was talking, but the verb in Acts 13.48 is tetogmenoi. 
Uh, and in Greek, the voice is determined by the ending of the word. And in this particular verse, tetagmenoi. Uh, Which word? Where, where are you looking at? Acts thirteen forty-eight. What word? Uh, tetagmenoi. Okay, so so check this out. So he's he's saying, look at this verb, and he's reading it. Matt Slick doesn't know which word it is. He doesn't know what word, because he's not looking at the Greek. He's looking at the English. He can't read the Greek. So like, for example, let me pull up Esword real quick. Uh, you, could, you could actually get Greek texts with strong numbers. And uh, you could actually read the Greek with the strong numbers pulled up. Here, I'm going to pull up an example of that. So Look at that. This is uh, pistoi, uh, kalomenois. So you could kind of you could kind of read it, and then you could kind of look at the words here. And it doesn't take someone that with like a super knowledge of Greek in order to do that. But he doesn't have that even. He just has the English version in front of him. And so he says, "What word?" Will Duffy responds with the Greek, and Matt Slick is still lost. He doesn't know what word it is. In English. Stop <laughs> okay. Uh, Ted uh, so he's like, what word is that? He gives the Greek. Uh, Meslik is like, which word is that? And uh, Will Duffy's like, appointed. And so he's looking. Yeah, Matt Slick is looking at the English. He, he doesn't know Greek. He can't read Greek. And so any of his points, based on, if there's any counter arguments ever against uh, Matt Slick about translation, Matt Slick just doesn't know what he's talking about. It's what's called a middle passive. And what that means is that in this particular instance in the Greek, the ending does not tell us if it's middle or passive. It's essentially based on context. And I have found that uh, Calvinists have sadly hijacked this verse. And I actually haven't met one Calvinist yet that's ever taught that this actually could be translated middle. And if it's translated middle, it loses. the... Look at Matt Slick's reaction. Do you see him? He's like, Whoa, and his face is going wild. He doesn't know how to respond. This this is like brand. He's, he doesn't consider it. He's never considered it. And this is his his cherished proof text that he loves. He loves this proof text. He uses it all the time. And it's uh, under direct threat. Watch his face. It loses the Calvinism presupposition. Here, take a look at that. You see that right there? What did I say? What did I say right at the bottom? Perfect passive. It's, it's wrong. Oh. <laughs> okay, so here's what he did. Um, I'm going to pull up... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to pull up the verse. I'm going to pull up uh, Acts 13:48 in my eSort software with strong numbers. And you, you see the like tense voice mood there. Acts 13:48, and we'll increase the size of that so people can see. Acts 13:48, and uh, he goes down to it, and oh, this is the Greek. So he probably doesn't even have the Greek pulled up. He has the English pulled up. And he looks at that. He says, oh, look, there's a pay. That means it's passive. <laughs> okay. Um, what you're using is uh, somewhat, they had either option and they put passive, but it could have been either because that's how the Greek rules of grammar work. But you go to your English software with your English word and these, uh, these conjugations that don't talk about alternatives, what things could be, and you take that as gospel. You just, you don't understand Greek. Oh, it is so funny. Oh, Oh, and look at his face. He's like, look at that. See that? That's not how it works. That is not how the Greek language works. 100% is wrong. Go look up Greek grammar. Right? All right, so <laughs> this is the... Okay. Uh, go get Greek grammar. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, I didn't know that the microphone picked me up saying that. I, I said, go pick up a Greek grammar and go read it. Oh, it is so good. It's so good. I quote Greek grammars on God is Open about this. Just talking about the use of of passive versus middle. This this is a known thing that people know who know Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know this. And and if someone were to like challenge me on something I don't know quite much about Greek about, I'd probably defer to them until I know otherwise. But he doesn't do that. He doubles down and he is wrong, is wrong. He just he He's looking at the English. He's looking at the English. You can look it up, but right here. We can leave it. Passive. We can leave it to the audience, and they can do the investigation. Do, yourself, do your homework. I'm looking. At oh, oh, you see Will Duffy's face. He's laughing. He's smiling. He he looked at the computer right there. Uh, I I think in our conversation later, me and uh, Will Duffy, he said he's looking at the English. <laughs> oh, he's looking at the English. Oh, oh, it's, I'm dying. I'm dying here. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. The Greek uh, lexicon right there. It's it says perfect passive. Next, next question. Sure. <laughs>
Okay. First, um, Matt. Oh, you're so bad, Matt Slick. You're so bad. You are so bad. Okay, so that ends my interaction with Matt Slick. Oh, he's funny. Um, he's he's got. Uh, let, I'm gonna go to my little write-up, my my post-debate write-up about the various weird things that he believes and and things we found out about Matt Slick. So number one, he didn't know what Plato taught. And uh, he claims that Plato was an open theist or whatever like that. He thought that Plato worshipped the Greek gods. That's what he thinks. He thought that. Yeah, we, we get that from the debates. He didn't. He thought Plato worshipped the pantheon on Greek gods. He didn't. He th- thought that Plato worshipped immutable gods. False. Uh, he doesn't know who Plotinus was. So when I pointed out that Plotinus thing, uh, he, he didn't know. who He thought it was Pliny at first. And, uh, I, you know, Plotinus it was who that is. And that's the Neoplatonist extraordinaire, uh, founder of Neoplatonism. People know who Plotinus is, who, who understand Neoplatonism. He uses the English Bible on his uh, computer with Strong's numbers and the tense voice mood uh, application installed. And he takes that as gospel. So you, you can't talk Greek grammar with him. Uh, he's got his gospel right there, and that's whatever the person decided to put. When they had an option between two options, they put passive instead of middle, uh, he's going to go with that. That's gospel, whoever made the tense voice mood numbering. And uh, <laughs> he thought that checking different English versions was a good refuta- refutation of uh, my point about the Byzantine text. He doesn't understand the text behind these different versions. Oh, oh, it's so... it's. What a beautiful, I drove down to Denver for this debate and it was beautiful and we got so much out of it. I had an excellent time and I was uh, euphoric for like, for like a week. All the funny things that happened and my funny interactions with Matt Slick. Oh, I was dying. I was dying. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. So if you got any questions or comments on this podcast, uh, just send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I believe open theism is a heresy.